0: Hey everyone! Welcome to the Sermon Podcast from Mount Hope Belmont's location, where each week you'll hear a message designed to help you learn more about God, grow in your love for God and others, so you can go and live a life driven by faith. This series, we will be talking about how God prepares His people. Many times we get so focused on the big, incredible moments in life that we tend to overlook the little moments that shaped those incredible ones. Jeff Mannion says that a remarkable life is built by taking a thousand unremarkable steps. The same can be said when reflecting on our faith and spiritual life. God often works through the day-to-day to prepare His people for the remarkable things in life. Join us for the next few weeks as we look at Scripture and see how God truly prepares His people. I think i have lost count of how many times this summer i've heard the phrase this is one of the worst days for america i don't have to look very far to see examples of sin and evil and pain and violence around me the purpose of sin and evil and tragedy is to rob life of purpose meaning and promise It strips away our dignity. It leaves us hurting, hateful, and vengeful. And that is the purpose of every one of these acts of violence that we see around us. They are meant to transform us. They are meant to rip us down. They are meant to dismantle us. The question I get asked most often on campus Is what difference does God really make in the world? And I appreciate the response of many people around the world that they are going to be praying for the people that have been caught up in these different acts of violence and please pray for them. But when people hear that and they think that's the only response we have to what goes on around us, it sounds really hollow. And fortunately, that's not the answer that scripture gives us alone. And so today, we're going to look at the life of Joseph, a man who had to go through misfortune after misfortune, acts of violence and hatred that were not his own creation. And to see what God did in his life to prepare him for an act that changed a huge part of the world. I want to start at the end, so we kind of know where we're heading. And in Genesis 50, 15 through 20, there is the climactic scene of this part of Joseph's life. We are in Pharaoh's palace. Joseph is the second in command of everything in Egypt. In fact, he's so trusted that the Pharaoh doesn't even check up on him on most things. He just lets him make the decisions. This is a setting that Cecil B. DeMille would love with his biblical epics. It's meant to dwarf the humans that come in the presence of whoever the ruler is at that moment. At this moment, Joseph's family has gone through a moment of tragedy, their father has died. He's died of old age, it was expected. But now his brothers are terrified. As we'll see in a moment, his brothers have treated him badly. They sold him as a slave. They set his life on a course um, that allowed person after person to abuse him. They think that the only protection they've had up to this point is the fact that their father is still alive. And so Joseph has not taken his revenge. But their father just died and they come before him. And in 15, verse 15 of, of Genesis 50, it says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a mo- message to Joseph saying, your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear. Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This particular moment expresses what God has done through the tragedy that Joseph has endured. In his place of authority, He has been forewarned of a famine and for seven years he stored up abundance in Egypt and when the famine came, he was able to feed the people of Egypt but also feed the people from countries all around. When he says many people have been saved by this act, he was being literal. And in addition, it meant that Jacob's family, Joseph's brothers who were also starving could come to Egypt and find food and find life. But this moment means more. Jacob was the head of a very dysfunctional family. We'll see how dysfunctional in a second. But Jacob in his own life was known for deceit and sowing distrust and his family had become a part of that. And at this moment, when Jacob dies, the brothers just feel like we're gonna revert to the chaos of our family, we're gonna be destroyed. They come before Joseph And he, seeing God's grace, extends that out and heals the people of God. They are fragmented. They are barely a family. When they come before Joseph, they are redeemed. They are forgiven. The fear that they have lived under is gone. And this allows the people of Israel to become a united people again. These brothers will become the 12 tribes of Israel. And from this place, God will begin to make himself known to the rest of the world and Jesus will come out of these people. But this act of redemption is huge, not just for the world around them at that time that they survived this famine, but this is part of God's eternal plan of salvation. He rescues his people. He keeps them, his people, and he builds a nation out of which Jesus can come. To tell the story, we'll go back to the beginning just to make sure that we see how God prepared Joseph for this moment. In Genesis 37, three and four, we read about those early days and I skipped a little part of my notes, so let me just check and make sure I'm okay. Okay, so Joseph is the 11th child of 12 as I said, born into a slightly dysfunctional family, maybe more than slightly. He is the first son of, his, um, of Jacob's second wife. He has two wives at this point. He has two concubines as well. And this is the first child of his favorite wife. That already creates tension within the brothers as to who exactly is going to get inheritance and how things are going to play out in the family. In the future. When we pick up the story of Joseph, Joseph is 17. And in verse 3 we see, now Israel, the other name of Jacob. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. He made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers... He hated them, they hated him, and could not speak peacefully of him. Now that was bad enough, but God also blessed Jacob with a gift of prophecy, of interpreting dreams that God would give people. And there were two dreams that are recorded here that only accentuated the tension between him and his brothers. The first dream symbolically had his brothers coming before him and bowing down before him. Now, we see that at the end of this story, that literally happens. His brothers voluntarily bow before him, asking for his forgiveness and the rest. But there's a lot between here and and there. When they hear the story, they're incensed. And in verse 8, his brothers say to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. This is a dream come from God, an interpretation come from God. This is not a new thing for Jacob's family, but it's not being embraced. The second dream also includes his father and mother bowing before him. And in verse 11, it says his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in his mind. So his brothers hated him. They were jealous of him. There was this growing tension. And so his brothers go quite a ways away. They're they're, um, grazing their herds. And Jacob asked Joseph to go and check on them. And so Joseph travels away and he's got his multicolored coat on. They see him coming a mile off and they start talking to each other. And they basically say, you know, we're out here way away from the rest of the family let's kill him and throw him down a well and then let's see how the dreamers dreams turn out and they're going to finish him off at that point the oldest brother talks him into not killing him right away he's kind of saying you know if the blood's on our hands we might have to pay for that so let's just throw him down the well he'll die eventually and You know, we'll we'll let the elements be responsible for that. Our hands will be clean. Secretly, he was hoping he could come back and rescue his brother, but he wasn't willing to go against his other brothers. They decide to do that, but then, as they're all apart in their own camps, some of them get together and say, "You know, we could profit off of this. Why just let him die? There's no profit in that." But. We could sell him as a slave. We could make some money off him. He'd be dragged off into another country. We'd never see him again. Everything would be good. And so that's what they do. They sell him as a slave. They take his coat. They rip it up. They put blood all over it, and they give it to their father, Jacob, and say, Joseph was attacked by wild animals, and he was killed, and we weren't there to help him. Um, If we were, man, we would have been brave. We would have taken care of this, but we weren't there, Man, it's a bummer. And so for Jacob and the family, they they forget about him. He's gone. He's dead. He's not a part of things. For the other brothers, he's sold as a slave. He's someplace in another land. They're never going to have to see him again. Problem solved. And so we see Joseph obeying God, and what he gets for it is hatred, violence, and pain. He loses his freedom, and he's sold as a slave. Now, God is still with him. He's sold to a man named Potiphar, and as a slave, he is a very good servant. He works to Potiphar's benefit. Potiphar begins to do really well under him, and he begins to advance Joseph until Joseph runs his entire household and is in a place of blessing. He's not free at this point, but he's living a a much, much better life. And at that point, sin comes in again. Potiphar's wife decides that he is a very attractive young man, and she's going to make use of him. Joseph decides that he's not going to take part. And so he runs, leaving his robe behind. And Potiphar's wife, incensed and angry about all this, tells her husband that Joseph just tried to rape her, and he's put in prison for it. His actions are clean, but because of the actions of another person, he is suffering again. And then what we find out when he goes to prison is that he decides to help the very guards that are keeping him in prison. So much so that they find that their job is easier if he's around and they put him in charge of all the other prisoners. He's basically running the place in all the best senses of that word. And we see a pattern begin to emerge. And it's a really important pattern. And it's a really important pattern for us in looking at how God makes a difference in the world and how God makes a difference through us. There's three things that we see repeated in every cycle as Joseph goes through these different tragedies. One, there's an acknowledgement that we have to contend with evil. Joseph is given this great prophecy, but he's not protected from all the evil that's out there. We live in a fallen, sinful world. Because of that fall, there is chaos in this world today. There is evil going on in this world today. There are people making mistakes at times, but in other cases, horrendous decisions. And they have consequences. They affect other people. And each of us in our lives, we've made those mistakes. Sometimes we have had evil behind our intentions. I can look at most of my childhood with my brothers and I can relate to Joseph's brothers. Didn't sell my siblings into slavery, but I really didn't think about it at the time, to be really honest. But evil is real. It it takes place out there. And Joseph is able to contend with that and, and to successfully move through it. One, because Joseph trusts God's promise. Each time that Joseph is put into one of these situations where there's Potiphar or the jailers, one thing they all observe is that they can see that God is with him. He is living his life in such a way that he is depending on that promise. He's being open about that promise. And people can see that. And so this prophecy that he's given early on, there's no place in this story where he ever gets angry and throws that promise away. We don't get, like we do in some other stories, some large lamentation of God, what are you doing? Are you still with me? In Joseph's story, he accepts that God is with him. And that's never a question. God has a promise and God keeps his promises. And then third, because he believes that, he chooses to bless the people around him. Because he sees the character of God towards him and towards the promises that God makes and he believes that God will be true to those, he is going to live in a way that reflects that God of promise and of hope. And he blesses and serves the people around him. He doesn't try to get back at them. There's not a vengeful spirit. If he was out for himself alone, he never would have risen to any of these places where he's given responsibility over a household, a responsibility over a prison. This is somebody who blesses other people as a response to evil and so brings good out of it. While he's in prison, there's two two people from Pharaoh's court that end up in prison at the same time. There's a cupbearer and there's a baker. Both of them are in prison because they've offended the Pharaoh in some way and both of them have a dream and Joseph can interpret their dream and for the baker, the interpretation of his dream is that he is going to win his favor again and he's going to be released from prison and he's going to work for Pharaoh again. For the cupbearer, I'm going to make sure I said the right one there. The cupbearer gets that. For the baker, it's not such good news. His interpretation, and Joseph doesn't sugarcoat it, is you're gonna die. You're gonna be executed for your crime. And sure enough, both take place. And as the cupbearer leaves, Joseph stops and says, remember me. Remember what I've done for you. And the cupbearer goes and he's in Pharaoh's presence and he completely forgets. And so Joseph continues to spend his time. So there's, one of the lessons in here is that every good deed does not lead to a complete triumph over evil. It looks like in the story that evil wins over and over and over again. And yet there's already a subplot that within these worlds that Joseph gets put into He can still change the equation. He can still bless the people there. He can still bring good where there is evil and bring change. But that's not enough for Joseph's promise that God has given him. Pharaoh then has a dream that he knows is from God. And no one can interpret it for him. And at that moment, the cupbearer has an aha moment. Hey, I met this guy in prison. He interpreted my dream. And and he even was honest enough to interpret a, a dream for a guy that it didn't turn out so good. And so they bring him in and he gives that interpretation of the seven years of abundance and the seven years of famine that leads him to be put in charge of Pharaoh's resources. Again, he comes into that place. He's a blessing. He shows himself a blessing and the Pharaoh trusts him so much that we're told that a lot of the day-to-day activities of the kingdom, the Pharaoh doesn't even check on him. We all have to contend with evil, but Joseph trusted that God's promise meant something and sure enough, That day came when Joseph was standing before his family and his family was bowing before him. It wasn't something that he gloated over. He saw the providence of God. He saw the grace of God, not only to his brothers, but to himself. The promise was kept. And so in humility, he says, who am I? I'm not God. Can I take vengeance on you? Look what God has done. I'm in this with you. And he reunites his family. He blesses his family. And then third, we see this response over and over again to be a blessing in the face of sin and pain and tragedy if the goal of sin is to rip us apart, to tear us down, to take away our dignity, if we're going to fight a battle to overcome that, then we have to use the exact opposite tools. You can't fight fire with fire in this case. We can't take the enemy's tools and use them against our enemy. Instead, we need a different arsenal. And we bring service and justice And blessing in the place of sin and hatred and hardship. That might sound like a good self help teaching, but you need to realize it starts with a trust that God has an intention and He's going to make that intention come to pass. And it ends with the understanding that God has the power to do what He's going to do. So Joseph didn't make this up himself. If it was just good intentions on his part, it would have fallen flat. It wasn't good intentions that brought him into Pharaoh's household. It was the promise of God and the power of God working in the middle of great evil. I have a friend, Joy. She's a campus pastor in Montana. Started campus ministry about five years, I think, before Lynn and I did. Um, Powerful minister, uh, a bright minister, kind of a national leader within our movement. And then one day uh, she was coming out of the parking lot and down Main Street, barreling at somewhere around 60 or 80 miles an hour, a drunk driver hit her. And in a moment she was paralyzed, a quadriplegic. It was a tragedy. And no one at the time tried to sugarcoat it. People prayed for her healing. Are we still praying for her healing? God hasn't chosen to act on that. I know that there has been times of pain and disappointment. Times of almost being overwhelmed by the change that has come into her life and the things that she can't do. She had young kids. She'd never hold them again. She'd never hug her husband again. But she had deep belief in God's promises. And if nothing else, all of us have the promise that is in John 15, 8, where Jesus says, by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. All of us, our promise that we will bear much fruit. And that's an intention of God and that's something that in God's power, he will fulfill. I know in the hospital, there were lots of tears. I know in the hospital, there were lots of words of frustration because I've I've heard them all from her husband. But almost every nurse that served her and and served her back to health got saved. Followed the Lord because of her example. Saw this woman who had been devastated and still had a hope and still believed that God could do something through her and with her. Didn't believe that sin would have the last word and dehumanize her and strip her from her dignity and strip her from everything positive. She can't go to others and minister to them, so she's created a place where other people can come to. So in the summer in Bozeman, Montana, there is a camp that college students from all over the world go to. They've got jobs for them in Bozeman, they work those jobs, they serve, they're a blessing in the community, and then together with joy, they they learn the word, they pray. They're counseled. They learn about the Holy Spirit and the work in their life. And they go back to their campuses transformed and they touch so many other students. And there are so many people who are truly alive today because of what God has done through Joy. Joy took the time that she has of not being able to go for runs. She was extremely athletic. And she wrote Tools for Mentoring. She took all of the collective tools of Chi Alpha up to this point, the things we do in Bible studies and to help people learn how to pray and other things, and she wrote those all out. And that manual is all through the world today. BU students will learn out of it this year. They did last year. Lives are being transformed and changed and made better. Sin did not get to have the last word. More than that, over sin, there was an increase in what could happen. Was it God's will that she's a paraplegic? I don't think so. That's not the way sin works. Sin is chaos. Sin is evil. Sin are people's decisions. God didn't make her a paraplegic. God didn't decide one day that I'm going to make a drunk drive into her. Scripture never teaches us to go that direction. Joseph did not cause the pain that was inflicted on him. And there is so much that you'll go through that you never cause. But God's promise to you is that you will overcome because he has overcome. He will bring you to a greater place He will not let sin have the last word in your life and he will not let sin have the last word in our communities because we are here to bless and to serve these communities. Yes, we will pray for victims, but we are always looking for the opportunity that God gives us to bring our hands and feet into the equation, to be part of the healing and the change that takes place. And our greatest example was 2,000 years ago when Jesus came innocent of any crime and humanity turned on him. And all the worst we had to offer, all of our prejudice, our hatred, our insecurities, everything we directed on him. And as God came to bless us, the response of sin was to put him on a cross and kill him. Now, did God do any of that? Did God spit in Jesus' face? Did God slap Jesus? Did God rip his beard? No. That was the power of sin. The power of God is that God took all the worst we had to offer, took it on Jesus, and showed that he was more powerful, that his intentions were stronger. And this act of great evil became an act of great salvation. And that's the difference Jesus makes in the world. Without the work of God through us, all of these tragedies we hear about in the news would only be tragedies. But even now, we're starting to hear stories trickle back of God's people working in those situations and good beginning to come out of it, of hatreds beginning to fall in places, of people's lives changed, of communities being built back together. We are in according to scripture, a war. Sin is trying to destroy everything God creates, but God's promise and his power are greater than that. And for each one of you, he has promised that he will bear fruit through your life. None of us will escape the touch of sin, and that's unfortunate until Jesus comes back and it's removed. But in the meantime, we can triumph over evil because God has triumphed over evil and he has promised us that he will do it through us. So as I was reading about Joseph, for the early Christians, Joseph was their their first example from the old testament of a christ character a character who takes in these evil but he keeps to the promise of god for the joy set before him he endures what's there he continues to serve and continues to love and in the end we see this great reversal that what was meant for evil becomes good Today I have to remind myself over and over as I hear the headlines that what is meant for evil because of Jesus Christ can become a great good. I want to be in God's way so that God has to reach through me to touch and heal people. For me, that's the greatest adventure of life is to be part of this great reversal. And that's what Joseph ends up inspiring us to. I wish Joy had never been hit by a drunk driver. I believe she still would have done great things. The amazing thing is she was hit by a drunk driver and God was powerful enough that she still did great things. And the history of the church, I can look at person after person. And to be honest, in any congregation, I can know person after person who's seen that happen. And what God has already done, he promises to continue to do. So we will mourn when it's time to mourn. We will support each other in times of grief because that's part of the process too. But that's part of the healing process. And whatever sin throws at us, whatever hatred throws at us, God is up for the challenge. He he has promised you. He will bring something better out of it. And you can bank on that promise and you can see it happen. And that's, like I said, the difference God makes in this world. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are not a rose-colored, pie-in-the-sky God that offers us um, weak platitudes. But that you have rolled up your sleeve and you have entered this world. You have made promises to us that you have the power to fulfill. And you have promised each one of us that you will do great things through us, that we will not be allowed to be destroyed by the sin and chaos of this world. Lord, I pray right now that for our nation, that you would begin a great turnaround. I'm tired of evil having its way. Lord, let goodness have its way. Let your spirit have its way. Let us enter into a great time of healing as your people choose to be a blessing to the people around us. Hey, thanks again for listening to the podcast from Mount Hope's Belmont location. At Mount Hope, we gather in Belmont every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m., and in Burlington at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. Each week that we gather, we do so to learn more about God, grow in our love of Him and others, and then we go to live lives driven by faith. If you live in the Burlington or Belmont, Massachusetts areas, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday. Learn more about us by visiting our website at mounthope.org, M-O-U-N-T-H-O-P-E.org, or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at mthopebelmont. Belmont. Thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to having you listen again next week.